This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab, a modern financial services firm that stands apart from the industry, where you can go as far as your ambition and unique talents take you to create a career worth owning. Hi, Jyoti. Thank you for joining us today. As a person with a tech background, what made you consider working for Schwab? I think although it's a financial company, it is technologically driven. You know, they're up on all the technologies and pretty much everything that's out in the market and there's the standard to be used, they are there. And I think, yes, their domain is finance, but I think they are pretty technologically strong as well. I would like to tell the other programmers who think that Schwab is not a tech company, you're wrong. They have a very complex tech stack and it is going to be really interesting and very fulfilling to work here. To learn more about the technology career opportunities at Schwab, visit schwabjobs.com. That's Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B-J-O-B-S dot com. Welcome to episode 133 of Greater Than Code. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Jessica Kerr. Good morning, and I am here with John Sowers. And I'm here with our guest, Shante Thurmond. Shante's interests are full-bodied, eclectic, and reflective of her entrepreneurial spirit. In 2018, she founded The Darkest Horse, a next-gen consultancy exploring the intersections of radical inclusion, the future of work, emerging technology, health, well-being, and human potential. Shante is also a contributing writer at Futurismic, a new digital publication powered by Nokia. Her background is anchored in organizational development, social innovation, health and well-being, and community engagement. Welcome to the show, Shante. Hello and welcome. Great to be here. So you probably already know what the first question we're going to ask is. <laughs> I had what an is, idea. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Ooh, I would say that my superpower is actually being able to spot talent or to be able to spot dark horses. That's how I got into my business. And how I acquired it, I would say, was through my own experiences as being one. But also, I played sports. In terms of playing sports, I played basketball. I was a point guard. And you kind of have to know what's going on around the court. You have to be able to know who on your team can deliver, who who you can pass to, who can uh, get you out of a bind when you're down on the clock. So I think that really helped me. Can you define dark horse? Yeah. The dark horse is usually the person in the race that has a least chance of winning or the people that you never even expected to be in the race. And the reference is sort of in uh, in conjunction with like a thoroughbred for horse races, right? The thoroughbred is somebody that you know has a pedigree and has a track record of winning, whereas the dark horse would be somebody that doesn't. And in modern day, I would say like it would be a Barack Obama or even Donald Trump, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I guess it goes both ways. Yep. You said that one way you spot dark horses is by having been one? Yes, I would say that I'm a dark horse. You know, I grew up, I would say, without a silver spoon in my mouth. I, In terms of a pedigree, I, I actually hate that word. But when you look at me versus somebody who maybe went to an Ivy League school or somebody who grew up with two parents in their household and from a middle-income family, I think that you see me and if I'm in the room with you, you're thinking, well, how the hell did you get here? Um, and it's through perseverance and, and hard work and determination and just really never giving up and daring to, to race or to even enter in a race that maybe wasn't built for me. It's a constant choice to be in the race. I would say so. Although I would say early on in my life, I was in a race that I didn't know I was running. I grew up in Iowa and I'm very multicultural. I, I come from, you know, a mixed background. My parents um, were in an interracial marriage and relationship. And so that was chosen without me, you know, having a choice. That was the situation that was brought up in. And so it starts, I think, from just looking at my own family and my background. And then it kind of followed me through school and through, you know, as I went, went to get my first job, some of the things that I was doing, I was in a race that I wasn't necessarily interested in running, but I had to show up. And I knew that as a person of color and as a person who was oftentimes like a double or triple minority, that I had to deliver because I really had no choice. If I didn't, I'd be kicked out of the group or ousted. Being a dark horse has a lot to do with performing above expectation. For me, it is. And it's also, you know, being able to rise to the occasion. And just I've learned that it's not always about winning and like coming in first. It could be that even just being able to run, 
uh, with some of the greats is really helpful. I can remember back when I um, actually ran track in high school and the women that I ran against were all really great. And so even though I didn't place top three, I still ran with some people who went down in the history of the state and that made me a better runner. Yeah, because we we learn from the people that we work with and that we interact with. And it's like you don't want to own the most expensive house in the neighborhood because we bring each other up or down. Right. That's a great way to put it, right? I would agree. So if this is about how you perform versus how people expect you to and and Mm -hmm. the perceptions that people have of you, that means it's socially constructed, right? That means that... Absolutely. So what is it do you think that causes people to not be able to perceive talent or potential? I would say that many times it's like our, our unconscious bias. You know, it's our, it's a belief or an attitude that we have um, that basically impacts the way that we might see a situation or an opportunity. And so that unconscious bias that we have is usually part of our conditioning socially. And it starts at home and then it, you know, is reinforced at school. And then as you get older, it's reinforced in your interactions with your social circles and and spheres. If you look at the history of this country, for instance, it's very hard to deny the fact that we had slavery and that we actually, there was a social value of people who were white or who were of affluent background. They had skin in the game in terms of trying to construct this belief that people who did not look like them and who actually were below them in terms of a of a hierarchical standard were either better or worse. They, they wanted to be on top and that's how they, they constructed it to be that way. Uh, so anybody who didn't come in looking like them or being as wealthy as them or having a background in terms of education as them or even religion early on in this country, that was a big issue. And here we are today. If you fast forward to 2019, we see this, this intersectionality in terms of our identity and the way that we identify with uh, politics and our religion and our um, ethnic or cultural um, identities, our sexuality and gender, all these things play into you know what, what society is expecting of somebody to um, show up as in the market or you know, come to work looking like and performing as a top person or below that. Yeah, because when, when you expect someone, when, when you just look at someone and you glance at them and you're like, yeah, white dude who went to MIT, whatever, you, you expect them to be in the race. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do well, you'll still keep inviting them to the race. Yeah, absolutely. Because, well, they just, they belong there. This is fine. Whereas someone who's a minority, that those expectations aren't automatically there, you have to see them run. Yeah, let me get a look at you. Let me fill you out and see if, you know, we can invite you here to begin with and if you should earn your spot. Absolutely. This has to do with essentialism, right? If you look at a rich person versus a poor person, you want to say, especially if you're a rich person, I'm rich because there are qualities inherent in me that make me successful. And you're poor because of the opposite. Mm-hmm. And this is that fair world hypothesis, isn't it? I mean, because you don't have to want to be on top. You know, it, it, that's it, true. You, you just have to want the world to be fair mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. that minorities don't belong there because minorities aren't there in the in the correct proportions in fair proportions and so you either have to think the world isn't fair or at some level they deserve it right and if you accept that the world isn't fair then maybe the advantages and privileges that you've enjoyed weren't fairly bestowed upon you and therefore you're in a precarious situation so it's one of those you can't convince someone of something that their salary depends on not believing uh and so you're just gonna ignore that fact which ironically makes the world unfair if you think the world is fair then you're part of the problem it's a it's a perpetual motion machine (laughs) yes you all are speaking my language here (laughs) absolutely so your experience your your focus is on diversity and inclusion. And a lot of that has to do with fixing that imbalance, getting more underrepresented people into positions where they can demonstrate their abilities and be successful. And how much of that has to do with helping the people making these decisions to confront their own biases? I think that's um, where I usually start. I'll give you this you know, very specific example in terms of talent and recruiting. Many times people are calling me and they'll say, Hey, we think we have this issue. We don't have enough women, enough people of color in the pipeline. And I usually stop them right there and say, let's just do some in-house sort of like 
checking to see where you are and how you're defining diversity first and foremost. And we often find that people are defining diversity just in terms of gender and just in terms of color or ethnicity. And we also know that that's just bullshit <laughs> because there's a lot of diversity. And I will tell people this, I grew up in Iowa, right? And which I think is, some people might make fun of me for that, but I actually think it's very helpful because it's in the middle of the country. It is very homogenous. And I can look in a room and most of the time when I was growing up there, there would be like, let's just say nine out of 10 people were white. If you ask them, what is sort of like your diversity score? How do you show up? What's so interesting about you? People will be like, oh, I have none. And what I learned quickly was that that's, like, again, that's bullshit. Kids who might all look alike, they might have blonde hair, blue eyes. You could learn that people come from German, French, some other, you know, other Eastern European background, and they could all have different religions and different socioeconomic statuses that make them very, very diverse from one another. And actually that is to their advantage. But if you don't ask and kind of keep drilling in on the surface, we, we assume, hey, I'm not diverse. And so this is what's happening because if we are only looking at somebody externally, we put an unconscious bias and an assumption there. We attach it to that belief. And so you have to break that down first. And once they ha have that aha, it's so much easier to talk about intersectionality and to talk about, all right, here's how we can diversify even more. And here's how you can get super inclusive. And here's how you bring in some equity and accessibility to the conversation as well. Is the idea there to not just see people as part of a group, but to see that each person you know, has unique qualities as a unique human being? Even within groups, there are differences. Absolutely. Yes. So you start with dividing? People are already dividing themselves. I think what we see naturally is people like to give things. Like we're, we're, in, a, we're in a society or a time in society where people are really comfortable with categorization and, you know, putting people into buckets or trying to figure out how they will deal with you, right? I mean, even on LinkedIn, you come in and you have, you have to determine which industry you're in and what the skill sets are. And if you're good at that, you're adept you'll do it correctly, but most people are actually doing it incorrectly, uh, which is fine. And and I also have learned, I mean, I think on LinkedIn, I mean, I often laugh because there's not even enough categories. And so if I don't identify as any of those things, there's really no space for me to put other. Um, otherwise, I think we would see people showing up a little bit differently in terms of like LinkedIn or even Facebook, for example. We, we see this happening across multiple platforms and technology right now. And I think it's just because that's how people are naturally coming up with these categories. Are um, you saying that LinkedIn is doing it wrong by providing a fixed list of categories? I think, yeah, I think a fixed list is limiting. Okay. Yeah. And there's, I mean, we want to bucket people because there's just so many people. <laughs> yes. And we're, we're trying to get a whole, I mean, naturally as humans, we're trying to get a hold of, we're trying to get our arms wrapped around uh, these big concepts. And then once we do that, it's a little bit more comfortable for us. And then we can maybe see where we are more alike versus different. But I think this is what's naturally, at least this is how the industrialized world works. We're, we're really good at categories, like categorizing each other and labeling one another. And oftentimes we're pretty horrible about doing it for ourselves correctly. It's interesting because the whole point of this, like the reason that these are categories rather than a free text entry field is so that we can aggregate, right? Exactly. Is so that we can look at things yeah. at a statistical level. But that necessarily <laughs> also homogenizes people. Exactly. Yes. Great insight. We, I think we just don't have the tools to deal with the actual diversity that exists. I know. It's something that I, I actually think it'll emerge as we get into this next sort of what I call the, the fourth industrial revolution. I think we'll see new things happening because even if I think about, for instance, a virtual or a digital twin of mine, if, if there's an avatar online, I don't have to necessarily decide on their ethnicity and their race and their gender. This thing, this entity could be an extension of me as Shantae, but I might not get bogged down as much with the ethnicity and the race, gender, sexuality, age, just other things that I might use to describe myself to exist online. And they don't have to be fixed either. Exactly. You said about categorizing and labeling, we're horrible at doing it for ourselves correctly. One of the things that I've learned through my own human development and going deeper into, into who I really am is that most people aren't sitting and thinking like, who am I really without all these labels? We're told lots of things 
it starts from the time that we're born. You're, you're labeled a, a woman or a male in terms of a gender marker. And that determines so many things for you. So if you come from a family that's really attached to those identities, just those two kind of binary choices. If you come from a traditional family where women do something and men do another. And like, for instance, if your father is the provider and women are the homemakers, I mean, think about how much of a choice that wasn't for that person and how much that that basically influences our identity and then causes a conundrum for many people if you don't fall within that binary. So this is something that we're seeing happening more and more. And as we see that the digital world is helping to kind of even things or make things more universal, people are really at this place of like, oh my God, I've, I've been kind of lied to all of my life. I've been told that choice is binary on so many levels, whether it's, you know, your gender marker, success or not success, going to college or not going to college, religious or non-religious, spiritual or non-spiritual. And these are things that we were just told and we were like, okay, I have to, I have to choose one versus saying, what do I really believe? And if I don't believe in those binaries, what are my other options? Because children just aren't really being taught that at school. They're mostly being taught that they have a couple of choices and they can choose one or the other, even with lunch. So not only do we categorize people, but we also impose those categories on people and they start to think about themselves. That forms part of their identity. Yes. And it limits their, their choices or their beliefs. Very much so. I think that that's what's wrong with our modern society in many ways, I'm just you know across multiple levels and and everything. I just, it's unfortunate that, that this happens. And I cringe when I see this happening to young people, especially with youth, because I was often given choices like from my parents, you know, a lot of it had to do with education and success and what I was going to do in the world and who I was going to show up as in the world. But it was usually a choice that they provided to me and I had to select one or the other. And then based on what they provided, I would either feel really good about myself or really terrible about myself. Depending on whether you, you're happy about one of the choices. Yeah, absolutely. If there's two choices for lunch and one of them is your favorite, that's fine. <laughs> right. But if they both suck and you're like, I don't know, I want to be a vegan. And they're like, too bad. We, we don't have vegan food. You know what? This is my house. And this is, which, is, which is true. This is happening to so many children. And we see less and less of it, but it still happens quite a bit. I was at school with my kids a few weeks ago and they had lunch and there was just only a few options. I thought, well, shit, if the kids didn't want to eat these things, you know, what would they do? And I'm guessing that happens, you know, rarely because there's usually some options. But, you know, and some kids who are very, very sensitive and hyper aware of themselves at young ages, they should be able to have a choice. There's always the bring your lunch option, right? Um, well, it's, I would say sure. But if you come from a family that maybe doesn't have the option to get lunch to like provide you with that, it might not be. An yeah, option. exactly. Because that anything else option takes resources and it takes thinking ahead and it takes effort. And you know we only have so much of that and some of us have more resources than others to apply to opting out of those binaries. That is right. And so having those options and then also having the ability to have some foresight to be able to plan ahead to have lunch, that's so much of a privilege. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then that translates and that carries over into the real world with work, especially so much of our lives is consumed with who we are at work in the workplace, which is why I'm so obsessed with kind of trying to deconstruct it again and rebuild it or help people see it in a new way. It strikes me almost that the identity box sort of thing is is a feedback loop where if you're, you're placed in the gender box or the gender role box, you know, at the start and eventually and you're told enough times that that's who you are, that becomes your identity. And once it becomes your identity, you want to defend it. And yes. it's so hard to snap out of that because it's a personal attack if that box starts getting deconstructed. And the way that yes. this is formed is if you're told you're a woman and you do things that don't fit that box that are masculine, you receive negative feedback and you learn, oh, that's not how a woman behaves. Yes. And before you know it, like you're you're caught up in this sort of like this cycle and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> if you're smart enough or you have enough EQ about you as a young person, you might start to, to sort of challenge the paradigm that's been placed upon you. Um, but I, I would say just based on my own experiences and then being a coach and working with people, it doesn't happen quickly. It, you have to sort of have some things that 
completely obliterate, you know, or challenge you to really say, wait a minute here, pause, time out. I didn't even sign up for this. What the hell is this? And we maybe we, we all know this like one sort of like hippie kid who came from these like amazing families who didn't raise them in that way. But I think it's rare. Very, very rare. Once you have that moment where you recognize that there's some category that you have been identified with and you reject it, does it make it easier to see and appreciate that in other people? I would say yes, because any form of oppression, once you've had it put some oppression put onto you and you feel the pain and you really are honest with that about the pain that you've experienced, I think it's so much easier to you know have some compassion and identify it within somebody else. I want to say that that everyone is oppressed in some way. Yes. Not everyone has recognized it yet. I agree. Which is what one of the things we talk about too, that, you know, actually the darkest horse could be any one of us. And when we help the darkest horse win versus the dark horse, like the darkest horse win, we all win. And in my mind, that planning for and anticipating who the dark darkest horse might be would basically require you to have universal human-centered design. Because it's not just about picking a person and saying, oh, we need to help you. It's about doing things that benefit lots of people. Absolutely. That, that it allows everyone to come in with their very intersectional identities and find some part of themselves to be reflected in that bigger circle. The flip side of being the one with the least opportunity is if you correct that, they get help the most. Precisely. Right. We often say as well that you know, what we perceive as our weakness is usually our greatest advantage. And when you can allow people, which comes into this whole thing of like self-empowerment or teaching folks to, to have self-agency and kind of falls under that category of human potential, when you allow them to see that they have an advantage now, wow, you shift somebody's perception of the world and how they're going to navigate it. That is so amazing. And you see a huge difference in exponential growth happening from individuals who understand it and do something about it. Do you have an example of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say I, for me, I've, I've done a lot of mentoring with youth um, along the way in terms of consecutively mentoring uh, executives in the workplace. And one of the things I noticed about the younger people, if I caught them early enough in terms of their identities and how they were actually even describing a problem in their life, then I would give them like this assignment of, okay, I want you to really think about who you are Take away all the titles and all the things that your parents told you that you were, all the things that your teachers told you that you were, that your friends told you that you were, and come back and tell me who you really are and what you're meant to do. They were able to get to that assignment and um, say, oh, my God, I, I was only thinking about these things because my parents told me or because at my school, these are kind of like the options I had in terms of like a degree or what whatnot. And if I would talk to somebody in the workplace who had been, you know, let's just say they're 40 years old, they've been you know doing this for 20 years. It's really hard to get them to do that because there's so much attached to that identity. And they're like, wait a minute. So you want me to stop and basically being who I am, give up this identity that could basically impact who my friends are, who my colleagues are, where I live, how I feel about the world. I would say, like, think about dealing like we, we see this. There's two great examples that are public and there's two shows about them. Jazz Jennings, who's a young trans uh, girl and Caitlyn Jenner. Those are two perfect examples. I mean, when you see those shows, they were running at the same time, basically talking about trans identity and challenging what we perceive to be these binary identities. But jazz had a much easier time accepting and deconstructing and challenging the paradigm, whereas Caitlyn Jenner didn't. And it was really hard because Caitlyn had to, you know, when I, I love the, the scenes when Caitlyn went on this tour bus with all these trans women, and they were talking about Donald Trump specifically and about Republican and conservative views and how that impacts the trans community. And Caitlin thought that, you know, she could sort of have the, the best of both worlds. And I think she ended up figuring out that that was not going to be the case because this new person, this new identity that she was going to take on and fully embody meant that there was parts of her past that she would have to give up in order to be this, this woman in the world. Yeah, that's a big deal because maybe because when you're when you are that student, you can say this is what my parents and my teachers have pushed on me. But by the time you're 40, it's not your parents or your teachers pushing on you anymore. It's you. Yeah. And that's hard to to basically own. I mean, I think about it. There's parts of myself. I'm like, damn, I don't really want to have to own that. But if I'm going to be a better person, I have to. Um, And it sucks. 
but yeah, it would basically require you to be, to admit that you're wrong and that that, and to say, this is what I'm going to do about it, which most people don't want to do. So I know you, t- you talk about health and wellness as part of the sort of package that, that you're addressing with the uh, dark horse. Uh, so tell me about how that intersects with all this other things that we're diving into. Yeah. And I, you know, so I have a nursing background. Um, and one of the earlier thoughts I had when I was in school was, oh my God, I love public health, community health, global health. I was really interested in this, this sort of model and framework, which is how I sort of see the world now. And one of the things we talk about in public health, for instance, is that health, it's usually on this axis of you know, either you're healthy or you're not healthy. Either you have an acute or a chronic condition or you don't. You're with, you're with disease or you're without disease. Many times when we're talking about health, if you just kind of look to the brass tacks definition of health, that's how we would basically say it. Whereas well-being would be a choice because that would maybe be the um, choice of having a healthy lifestyle and eating healthy food and doing these different activities like, for instance, meditation and yoga, things that we can do to increase our or to enhance our uh, mental and health or excuse me, our mental and spiritual well-being in addition to our physical well-being. And so it's a choice. And I would say then taking it a step further, human potential is just like we all have human potential. Um, and based on you know where you grew up and who you're hanging around and the things you choose to do in terms of even health and wellness could impact your human potential. And some of us, frankly, have more potential than others based on our, our circumstances and the factors that I mentioned before. Yeah, because some of us grew up with... Had the ability to bring our own lunch to school if we darn well pleased. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yep. Or in buildings that didn't have lead. <laughs> or asbestos, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. So sometimes we talk about privilege and people will get their hackles up, but maybe the word potential is better. I think it could certainly be one of the options, right? There is such a thing as privilege, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and also potential. And they could be somewhat different, but they could also in some ways be exchanged. Like you could use the words or exchange one word for the other in certain circumstances. So I think you're out of something. Privilege yeah. is also very abstract. And maybe the sort of concrete ways that it shows up are access to opportunities, access to resources, things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you don't want to say, oh, I have higher potential. Then, <laughs> but True. but you could say that in my situation, the mm. same person has higher potential than the same person in the in a situation of discrimination. Yeah, it's about the context, and and it's not about your parents having money makes you a higher potential person. It is that you um, sit in a a situation of higher potential. Just like higher on hill, you have more potential energy, you roll down, you go faster. Right. And you have more with the the higher potential than the greater opportunities that are put in front of you. So I would say that, yeah, you're onto something there. So so maybe, maybe privilege corresponds to situational potential. I certainly would be open to that. But I know some, some folks uh, or friends of mine who are in the space might say that's not right. But again, I'm a person who likes to deconstruct and challenge the binary and the, the paradigm, even if it has to do with diversity and inclusion, right? And, and I'm not proposing that we change the vocabulary. However, there are certain people when I talk to them, mm-hmm. I use the word privilege. Yes, yes. Because they're just going to get their heckles up. Yeah, it's, it's a trigger word, right? And again, yeah. it challenges who they believe that they are showing up as in the world. Yeah. So once we get past that, it's much easier. People are much more malleable. But we have to get past that first. It's like some people, I don't say bias. I will say mental shortcut. Mm, There you go. (laughs) Whatever it takes to get through that conversation, I'm a fan of. Because I think people have to, again, words, that's another social construction that, you know, the meaning of a word we have to agree on as a society. And 100 years, 200 years ago, it may have meant something else. And just like, you know, even 20 years ago, Google wasn't in the dictionary. Now it is. Mm. Yeah. And we, we socially accepted it, constructed that, put it in there. And so in 20 years, 100 years, somebody else might say that's a crappy word. Get, the, get it the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> We're not having that in the lexicon anymore. Get it out of here. Yeah, good luck with that. So, 
So there, there's a model that I really like in other uh, situations for understanding performance or potential or possibility. And it, it came from Stafford Beer, and I'm not going to go into that because uh, I could spend 15 minutes going into that, as you all know. But it is um, actuality, capability, and potentiality. So mm-hmm. actuality is what we can do right now with the resources we have, what we're actually mm-hmm. doing right now. Capability is what we could be doing if we really maximized our use of these resources and constraints. And then potential is what we ought to do by removing those constraints, giving people the resources they need. Right. So capability, there is an upper bound on how much you can do given the resources and opportunities you have. And then actuality is how close you are to it. Mm. Then increasing potential is about moving that upper bound up. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that definition. I would agree with that. And there, again, I think that there will be people who might say, well, there's alternate ways to define that, but I think it gets to most of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to say philosopher. Okay. Kyle Popper says that arguing over the meaning of words is pointless because words have meaning in context. However, agreeing upon the meaning of words, even if it's scoped to a particular conversation, a more likely project, that's useful. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I practice detachment, right, as part of my meditative uh, practice. And I detach from sometimes the outcome and the, the meaning of things or having a skin in the game because it doesn't help me get any further in what I'm trying to do. You know what I mean? It doesn't really help me. It actually hinders me if I have too much attachment to something like an outcome or, like I said, um, a meaning. If I can open my, myself up a little bit more, I mean, I unlock the potential. Is that like choosing not to run a particular race? Or it could be that I'm going to run the race, but I don't care about winning. It's just that I'm running the race for the experience right now. Oh, that's a beautiful place to be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because because then it's not about the outcome of the race. It's about the other outcome of all of our actions, which is the next version of us. Yes, yes. It's like the collective experience and the collective outcome. Yes. So Stafford Beer, in the preface to his book, The Brain of the Firm, which is where this model comes from, says... Mm-hmm. In communication, everything depends on what you end up with, not on what was actually said or written down. Mm, Yes. We get to choose the words. And the important thing, like Jess said, is that we share some understanding by using them to communicate. Yeah, there would have to be some shared understanding, right? Some shared understanding to have a shared experience, I think. He points out that people like to argue about the names we use and forget about the ideas they represent. Precisely. I think that's the, that was sort of the point I was making about, like, for instance, LinkedIn or these categories, right? We argue about names and like the lexicon of our shared language at work or in professions and in industry. But sometimes like letting that go is so much more impactful because you may have a new emergence of something else that you never would have made room for before. This thread of the conversation is reminding me of the Sephir Wharf hypothesis, which I think Rain you had said isn't necessarily fully where one philosopher eats. The hypothesis that like the language that you use to think about something limits what you can think about it because if you don't have a word for a certain thing, it's just not gonna come into you. And and I think that's what you're talking about with LinkedIn and with these other things where you know, if there, if these are the 10 industries that you could be in and you're not in there, then you try and sort of force yourself into it or you're just not, you don't exist in the system. And mm-hmm. so you're just not counted as part of whatever it is. And the same thing goes with a gender field that has, you know, male and female in it. All the other options are just eliminated from reality. Yes, absolutely. And for me, I'm very much, I've, I've realized over time that I'm really an innovative thinker. And when people put limiting notions into my mind or like if we're in a room having an ideation session, for instance, and folks sort of give me these like guardrails and bounds, I feel like, oh, damn. But if you don't talk about the boundaries for me, I can come up with a whole bunch of like never thought about, never spoken about concepts and ideas and words and things like that. So I think the minute you put this something in the air, like the energy can actually shift for people. I really wholeheartedly believe that. Something like what? I'm very much into somatic healing and, and energy healing, for instance, right? So if, if somebody walks into the room with this notion of 
there's a limit that life does not, or this world does not exist in abundance. You can feel that shift. You, you can feel that in your energy field. I mean, at least for me, I can, I can definitely feel it. When I bump into people who are not open, they're very close in terms of their energetic field. It feels bad to me. It makes me feel a certain way. And I just wonder how much that plays into who we show up again, who we show up as in our families, in our community at work and the world, you know? That's interesting. And that goes back to accepting the boxes mm -hmm. that you labeled with. Mm -hmm. If you accept those boundaries and take them as given, then, then you close in and you close yourself off. Mm -hmm. But it's so much better, so much better to just let all the ideas in and then filter them. Or to not label them. And so, so I'm not sure if anybody here practices meditation or not. But there's a, several different types of, t of meditation and, and everything. There's this concept of, you know, having a thought, acknowledging that you have a thought, but not labeling it good or bad when you're meditating or when you're trying to get into this meditative practice. And, and then I'll take it another step further. One of the philosophies, an ancient philosophy att attached to yoga is the concept of Advaita Vedanta, which is about oneness and it's about non-binary things, right? There's no yin and yang. There's no good and bad. There's no right or wrong. It's just we are. It's an, it's, we're, we're here and we are. And if you live in the moment, you tend to actually realize that's actually how we experience the world. If you're living in the future or in the past too much, you start to label things because you have to, you have to step away from the moment and make a judgment or have a reflection. Judgment is expensive. Yeah, it is. And what's the cost of it? You know, that's what I'd like to figure out. What's the cost of judgment? boxes heavy <laughs> uh my friend matt ringle has a conference talk where he talks about whiteboarding where he'll he'll take a simple exercise and he says all right let's get some ideas up on here and i'll draw four squares and we'll put the ideas in these four squares and they represent these axes he's like i've just told you seven truths about the universe that are going to bound these ideas Mm. that there are four categories that they can go into, that this category is different from that category and a whole, a whole rundown. And that's the yes. that same sort of idea that you've just put a whole structure around what the ideas are going to be. Um, and nobody even realized you were doing it. Yes. Yeah. Right. We set up these little rules that that is precisely what I think. I believe that framing is incredibly powerful and also controlling the frame is an expression of power. Oh, right. Decide what those two choices are. Yep. Agreed. And and how much so this is something that I've also um, very interested in, in exploring right right now. As I even kicked around this idea of creating a podcast, I thought, wow, framing, right? It's very similar to the curation. And those who curate and who you know show up and, and lead the conversation, the facilitators have so much power. So who are the facilitators? Who are the curators in your life? Who do you allow to basically influence the story that you're being told and that you're going to repeat? And this is shows up on online all day long. Twitter. Who do you follow? Who do they follow? Where are they getting their information? Who um, comments on your Facebook posts and hits yeah. like or yes? You know, are you and and is Facebook or or Twitter or LinkedIn the the places you really should be? You know, because that provides a framework as well. Just the way in which those platforms are. It's not like we, we can choose not to frame. Mm -hmm. that, that's not a thing. We're, we're always looking at things within some frame. Mm -hmm. And we have to categorize at some point. But the trick is just look at it with more than one frame. Just right. know this is not the only one that makes such a difference. Yeah. Read about lots of frames. Figure out that, you know, you can sort of cut and paste and adopt things um, that, that resonate the best with you. But, and it could be like a conglomerate of all of those things. But I think recognizing that there are frames that you might be called to one more than the other is essential to doing things right in the world. Yeah. Or like if you've ever switched religions or been mm -hmm. religious and then not, then if you can think about something in terms of your past frame, that's progress. Oh yeah. Which I have done. Yeah, totally. I grew up a Catholic, you know, uh, and I, there was a point in time where I was like, no more Catholicism. I'm completely done with all of you. I wouldn't say I'm atheist, but I would probably, you know, identify as agnostic. And, you know, then it took me some time to sort of be comfortable there and to be arguing with the world from that point of view. And once I got comfortable and everything, I said, okay, I can now go out and re-educate myself because my brain's been sort of like 
It's like, it's like a white space right now, you know, but I had to get over all these assumptions and these feelings I had about Catholicism and Christianity first. It really required me to do that. So there's a, a concept from uh, psychology called functional fixedness, which is when you are unable to perceive an object as having a use that's different from the one that you already know it has. And so the experiment that they did uh, to demonstrate this is you were given a box uh, that had a candle and some thumbtacks in it, and you were told, make this candle stick to the wall without falling down. And what everyone tried to do was figure out some mechanism of thumbtacks that they could put the candle on. And then the obvious solution that escaped them was thumbtack the box to the wall and then put the candle on it. Because uh -huh. the box was a thing that held the parts to use and not a thing you could use to solve the problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much of this sort of categorization and limitation is maybe not caused, but impacted by some sort of fixedness where we see ourselves as being in a category, then we just don't see that there are other options for us. I think that's a large part of it. And, and, and whereas if you can see those other options, that's where you can see that your greatest weakness is also a strength, mm -hmm. a different use. Yes. I love this conversation. So how, how so much of good. what you do as a, as a coach is about, I'm kind of guessing that this is the thing you do. Uh, how much of it is about looking at what a person is doing and how they are framing their lives and their, their possibilities and saying, oh, hey, have you thought about maybe you could do this? Yeah, it's very much, I would say that's a big part of what I am doing. And it shows up so much so differently for each client. So, for instance, if I'll give you one I'm working on right now. There's an organization I'm working with, my partner Rada and I. You know, They want to figure out, for instance, how they engage their, their female staff. But they already made it. They showed up making an assumption that that was what was wrong with the organization today. It may have been an obvious one, but I challenged the way in which they're they're setting limits for themselves. And we talked about engagement versus you know happiness. And somebody said, "Well, aren't they the same?" Well, no, actually, they're not. So how we identify it and how we define it would limit us and. Maybe those aren't the other, the only two things, the factors that play into this organization's mm -hmm. issue. Quote, I'm putting issue in there in, in terms of quotes because I just feel like, again, it's how they're defining it and it sets the tone. And that's that organization. But if it's an individual that I'm coaching, let's just say it's the CEO of that organization, the language that they use tells me so much about them. How they approach a perceived problem tells me even more. Yeah, like the word female. Yeah. And, and so then I'll coach them. I basically meet them where they are. And a lot of it for me is about the language and the actions I see. I, I listen first to the language and I watch for the actions that they're taking. And that most of it's right there. Very easy. And then I, I coach to where they are developmentally. You know, some folks can hear you and some folks have to see it and, and actually experience it to change. It's about behavioral change, too. Well, she has to use a whole bunch of things to sort of help people take on. So it's an interesting job. And when people come in saying, well, I thought a recruiter was this, or I thought a diversity and inclusion consultant was that, I'm like, there you go again, putting limits on me. You know, I'm really good with people and I'm really good with starting there. And I feel comfortable because I feel like the people are the ones who run the organization. So I'm good with people and figuring out how to, first of all, help them with their intersectionality how they want to contain it and show up, help them reframe sometimes and make pivots to get to a better outcome. It sounds like you're approaching organizational change through the people rather than trying to address the organization as a whole. Yeah, I think many times you have to, but of course, sometimes you have these clients who want to do it very much like, nope, it's only just an organization. There's nobody, not, no one of us here has an issue. It's like, okay. This organization again, is, is somehow power. not made of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't call us out, please. Okay. It gets really uncomfortable. Um, I'm like, okay. And so I'll meet them where they are. I've learned. I mean, I think early on I'd be like challenging it, but now I've learned like, you know, the path of least resistance sometimes when you're trying to help people with behavioral change, it's like, I'm going to meet you where you are. You know, I, I learned this in terms of nursing and trying to change somebody. They were diabetic and they loved Snicker bars. I'm not going to tell them not to eat Snicker bars. We're going to talk about something else. I'll, I'll leave that last. It's very touchy. It's very, it's a, it's a, it's a trigger for them. <laughs> so I think that this is actually another binary to be deconstructed. There is on the mm -hmm. one hand, the idea that 
a society is a function of the actions of individuals. Ooh. And then on the other hand, there's the idea that an individual is a function of social pressures. Mm-hmm. And I, I think yeah. that the answer is somewhere in between. Yeah, and, 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 and there's this assumption that the actions of individuals are formed by individuals, but it has a lot to do with the people around them who hit like. Right. <laughs> who, people who hit like, people who pay their bills, people who validate them outside themselves. There's so many things that, that make us who we are and then how we go back and show up with that. If you want more vegans in Iowa, offer a vegan lunch option. To- right. So much is about what we make easy. And then so much of, of inclusivity and accessibility is about making more things easy. Mm-hmm. And which things we're, we're choosing to make easier. How we how do we define easy? Hmm. I, I think of it as sort of people flow downhill. So they'll mm-hmm. do the thing that has, from their point of view, the least cost or the most benefit. Mm-hmm. They have some function they're optimizing, right? Usually their attention. And so each person has different factors the way in on it and so there's no thing you can't just say this is easy you can say this is easy for you right oh right right yeah oh yeah there's that whole thing you can't change the situation to put things right in front of people you can give them a button instead of requiring them to open a program and type a command Mm -hmm. so from that perspective it's a design problem right i think so i mean i think yes the masters of the universe are the ones who are sort of architecting it do you, do you all watch um what is it the, the the lego movie the master builder yeah oh, the the original lego movie yeah yeah it was yeah. so good and they figure out that the guy who had nothing in his mind was the master builder <laughs> which made me laugh so hard it was such a good uh, example and and lesson i think it was his name emmett am I, am I wrong about that oh yeah yeah emmett that's the hero yeah remember that was hilarious to me it was all situational though you know he was in the right place time it, it was <laughs> i'll have to start using that that uh, movie and the referencing of that more often show up with my lego emmet <laughs> <laughs> and, and your your glue cap stuck to your back <laughs> right yeah because the hard part is removing something from the universe like the crazy glue mm-hmm. taking a word away is really hard it is and usually people are, because of the pattern recognition, if you take something away, they want something to replace it. Mm-hmm. They're, not com- they're not comfortable with that, like white space or like there's a gap here. So now what? They want sort of you to tell them how to get to the next place. So, yeah. That actually ties in really well with Ariel Kaplan did a keynote at RailsConf called The Stories We Tell Our Children. Uh, it's it's a great talk, but there was a particularly interesting point that's relevant here was he talked about forget who posited the original sort of law of bullshit, which is that it takes 10x the amount of effort to refute bullshit as it does to create it. <laughs> um, but in the talk, he poses Kaplan's corollary, which is that rather than refuting bullshit, if you provide an alternate path, an alternate narrative that works around the bullshit, you, you give something for people to follow rather than directly just telling them, take this away, take this out of your mind, don't think about it this way. Mm-hmm. But if you give them an alternate narrative that says, no, this is this is how we can explain this thing, or this is how this thing works, people can follow that as a positive step towards a thing, rather than trying to do a negative step away from a thing. And I really like that way of, rather than just always pushing up against you know, stupid ideas, if you just provide better ideas, and, mm-hmm. and explain them well, that people can be attracted to those and, and follow that path. Yes, agreed with that notion. I would I would call that a tactic, right? That you can use and that might be very helpful. And in some ways, it's helpful with folks, especially with like big concepts that we as a society, like those what we call infrastructural beliefs and changes we need to make that require us to, to like have a paradigm shift. That's appropriate. But then somebody might say, well going back to the framing or to the way that we show up and provide some suggestions individually could be an issue if you're trying to help somebody get to an identity, for instance, like, right. But I do think that, you, that there's some <laughs> lots of truth to that because if I'm just thinking about my own identity, for instance, if I'm really lost in who I am or those very like sort of foundational things that we see in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if I'm very much in a bad place, I need a way out. I need to see a glimmer of hope. Many times I need to see like a rope come down the hole to give me a slight notion that there's a way out. So we're, we're getting close to reflection. So I just wanted to ask a quick question 
It's actually not very quick, and we could probably spend a whole episode talking about it. Um, I really wanted to ask you, uh, it has to do with how you work with organizations to improve diversity and inclusion, and specifically when organizations are metric-focused or data-driven, and they tell you, okay, what's the metric we're going to use to track diversity that we're going to use to make decisions about diversity? What do you do? I, I would first want to know, and this is this is a thing that happens quite a bit, I want to know, again, how, how they define it, because how they define diversity will impact the way in which they're measuring it or how what, what data points they're collecting and putting emphasis on. Um, if they define diversity as gender specific and cultural and racial, then that's what they're probably going to track. In that instance, I, I, would, I would probably, and I do often, challenge and say, is it self-identified, self-selected? Or are you making an assumption by looking at somebody and having a conversation with them? Either way, it's probably wrong. Because again, it could be that if you if you are offering a survey and you're and this is a data point you're collecting, there's five answers only, but my five, my answer doesn't fit within those five options. Well, you missed my data point. And then the analysis that you're you're making as a conclusion to basically guide you as a as an organization to move forward could be skewed. Right. So I, I like to start with this universal place of the, the definition, the context that we're in. Um, maybe you choose a few different competitors and non-competitors to help you gauge within you know, the context in which you're working as an organization and then start again. And most times people are actually doing it incorrectly. They have a strong assumption and they don't want you to challenge it. They really want an easy answer. And there's so many ways to get there. So I tell them there's more than one way to skin a cat. You really do need a strong uh, diversity and inclusion roadmap that often usually it starts with deconstructing your beliefs. So here's the thing that makes me super anxious about social and cultural change and metrics. Uh, there's a law called Campbell's Law. Mm -hmm. Donald Campbell was a psychologist and a social scientist. And his law is that when you use a quantitative social indicator, when you use a metric to make decisions about social or cultural change, that the metric itself will become corrupted mm. and that the use of the metric will corrupt the social structure that you're trying to change. It'll corrupt mm. that social process that you're trying to change. And so my concern yeah. is when a company says, hey, we want a metric for diversity, and then you give them one, mm -hmm. no matter how good it is now, that it will become bad. It will become corrupted over time. And not only will it become a bad metric, but it will cause the people who are optimizing for it to corrupt the social processes that they're trying to change because metrics can be gamed and so on. Oh yeah. I think that's what we're seeing actually. Right. We see this happening quite a bit right now in terms of these bigger fortune 500 companies, unfortunately. And, and, and you see that this, these metrics they've selected have created the situation in the marketplace where candidates now respond to those metrics and anybody who comes into the job thereafter, even if you're a startup, you mimic those metrics. So my belief is like things are always changing and you should not get, again, don't get too attached to these things. Practice detachment because the definition of diversity is extremely fluid, as are our, the identities, right? The identity of who we are is usually very fluid if you're being honest with yourself. It can be. And if you don't think it is, then I would say that's the problem. So you want a fluid identity is a positive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as we get into this whole to the city, so emerging technology will challenge who we are and what, how we identify and what we believe for hopefully forever. Um, again, as I was going back to the avatar example, you know, I, I think about it. It's like if there's no option to, to select a gender, damn, that's really interesting. And if you and if you start with an app like a digital twin that has no gender. Well, goodness, you can take away all the things you thought would, were limiting to you as, a, as selecting one or the other. It's an opportunity, like exponential opportunity. Right, because selecting the other just means you have to take on a different role. Yeah, but what if you were all of it? Then you have to choose so many things. It can be a lot of work. Just like bringing your own lunch. You have to figure out what to bring every morning. That's why I never bring. <laughs> right. Right. But or going back to this whole thing of like, if you're all of it, like you're, you're a reflection of it all, like the Advaita Vedanta sort of belief in yoga, like I am the reflection of the entire universe, a collective conscious. That means I'm everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm all that surround me and all that I can't even see. 
So I don't need to choose or decide what's good and bad. I just, I, I'm, I'm simply here and I can know that there's a lot of power, right? In the collective consciousness and in the, in the collective identity of who we are as humanity, for instance, that we could be a, lots of avatars. Right. Cause I mean, at some point you have to make a choice. You have to like take one action and not the other, but that doesn't mean you have to do the same thing every time. Yeah. Live in all, alternate realities and, and universes with the power of mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality. Amazing. <laughs> it is. I'm super excited about it. Someone said to me the other day, wouldn't it be cool to be a bird and live in three dimensions? And I was like, yeah, we kind of do have extra dimensions on the internet. Yeah. I think that we are getting closer to, to seeing that um, and to having it be like an everyday reality versus only folks who have that technology. I think eventually it will be that we're living in that world and realize, oh my God, I've been an avatar the whole time. <laughs> oh shit. What does this mean? <laughs> then we have lots of existential crises happening all around the world. <laughs> Is the world in my head? Doesn't matter. Right. Is it? Doesn't exist. Maybe it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> yep. So I think it's uh, about time to get into the section of the show where we call reflections to talk about things that uh, really stood out for us in this conversation and um, things we might take away to think about later. Um, I think for me, there's lots of things that I'm going to be thinking about later, but I think one that's popping up particularly for me is uh, a theme that's popped up on quite a few other shows um, in the past year, uh, which is like you were saying, Shante, when you pay attention to the margins, to the marginalized, to the things that are the farthest from the center and the, and the, the main parts of things and, and, and optimize for those getting better. You also at the same time optimize for the happiness of the rest of the people, you know, inside those margins, the people that aren't as marginalized, because by making it a better environment for them, you make a better environment for everyone. I think the conversation also came up in, in the context of accessibility, where if you build your website using, you know, accessible coding standards, you know, you improve it for the people that, that need them, but you also end up building a better design for everyone. Yes. And so that's a, a theme that's definitely highlighting for me here. I like that. Thank you for sharing that one. My favorite quote of the show was, letting go of your goal allows emergence of outcomes you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're in the race to be in it, then we have our eyes open to everything that comes out of the experience besides the trophy. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking lately about how whenever we reach a milestone and we stick our heads up and look around, the first thing to look at is not, did we make our numbers? It's what effects on the system have we had that we didn't expect? Mm, that's the question people should be asking themselves and right. they work with more often. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a problem with goals in general, which is that often you focus on them for so long, then the moment you achieve them, you're just like, well, now what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I think this is one reason we have like test-driven development and iterative development and at an extreme TCR, test commit report, because the smaller we make our goals, the more frequently we stick our heads up to the ground. Yeah, that's a great point. That's one thing I really appreciate about like when we see the agile framework, for instance, right? The, the, the quick cycle of um, sprints. I wish more people would adopt that in other realms of work. In fact, this is a conversation I'm having with some folks from my nursing school. I don't think that they understand what the agile framework is and maybe how it's showing up in terms of technology, but there's certainly lots of things they could learn from using a framework like that to get through iteration and, and better design. Yeah. Well, one of the other things about that, I think, is that we're always operating with incomplete information. And so we will never be able to take the most optimal path towards our goal. We might even have the wrong goal. And mm -hmm. the more frequently that you can just, like you said, stop, look around and adjust based on feedback, the shorter the path will ultimately take is, and the more likely we are to actually achieve the goal. Or more likely something that emerges that is better than the original goal. Right. And goals, right? It can be more than, then you, you have chances to do more things, right? It's like if you just commit to one, which is what we see happening in lots of workplaces, like one goal a year or three goals a year. And then it's like, well, shit, if you did that all year and you don't stop and pause and ask, 
you waste a whole year of nothing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, uh-huh, cause cause nine months ago I knew exactly what the most useful thing to, for me to be doing now. No, I I oh mm. yes. Yeah, that's this is one thing I just love, like I said, about technology and folks in technologies, I learned so much just from that simple framework and approach to problem um or for opportunity. So agree. I like I like this. One of the things that I'm starting to believe more and more is that this model we have for achieving change where we fixate on a goal and then we try to find steps to get to the goal isn't actually useful because it presumes too much about our ability to know what our goal will end up being when we get there. And I think what's more useful is to have values that we can use to determine whether we're moving in a direction we want to move in and to just continue to move in a direction that is towards our values. I love that. I would say that's something that most people can do, right? Which this is kind of, it's nice that you brought this here because sort of what I was saying at the beginning is if you've never been allowed to think about who you are and what you even, like these values, because usually that's sort of how we, we describe ourselves as these, I'm, I'm, I have integrity. That's a value, right? And so thinking about the way in which we show up and the values we have is far easier and more accessible, more universal, I think, for people. And it doesn't put it doesn't require you to have as much judgment. It's more fluid and flexible. And it's something that it's very inclusive as well. I love that. So let's say, for example, that your goal is to become a principal software engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you think that that's your end value. That's your goal. I, I always challenge that that's actually the means. That's the means to achieve what you value. And what you value might actually be impact on the organization in terms of making technical decisions, impact in terms of being able to put things into production that are helpful to people. And if you, Or maybe it's prestige salary, and that's yeah, legit too. Yeah, maybe it is prestige salary. salary. That's fair. <laughs> but if you, if you take what you think is your end value, becoming a principal software engineer, and then you analyze that, and figure mm-hmm. out what it is that you value that caused you to have that goal. I think you can be more successful in achieving those values. Yes. Yeah, because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna get that promotion. You're gonna be a principal software engineer, and then you're gonna have a midlife crisis because you're like, well, now I'm supposed to be happy. Achieving goals doesn't make us happy. Because it turns out that something does. Even if you achieve the goal, the things you value are still there, and there's still a, a way for you to go that moves in the direction of your values, even once you achieve your quote end goal. Right. And if you are, if, if the software engineer is the goal and you realize, I mean, according to Forbes or <laughs> whoever, indeed, whoever's going to, or, um, monster that, yeah, that job really isn't that great anymore, then you feel really shitty about yourself. So if you make it about the value versus the goal, right? It's about the experience, the journey along the way and the things that make a good, so, you know, so and so, um, that could be applied to more than one job. Okay, last thing I'll say about this is I think it's also much easier to realize that your values can change over time than to get to the point where you have to reconcile your current values with your current goal and realize that they're no longer aligned. Yeah. Like identity. That's a small, subtle thing, right? That I think people that's, that's accept that makes it more palatable for people to accept. And also, okay, the last, last thing I'll say about this (laughs) is that the goal is a binary. You either achieve it or you don't. Right. Mm, yeah. Whereas with values, you can be consistently moving towards something that is more fulfilling for you, whether or not you ever achieve a goal. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, I love this. This is good. And this is you know these whole kind of ahas and what, these takeaways are actually what I like about this conversation the most is that it's really interesting how we can start with these sort of domains or ideas and then we arrive at this at these sort of different takeaways and different levels of appreciation of values appreciation and that none of it's right or wrong. It's all really good. Having this conversation, even amongst the four of us, feels really good for me. And I feel like I'm making progress in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. To me, I feel like I showed up and had a really good day. Yay. Yay. Hope all of our listeners have a better day too. And if this conversation made your day better, you might want to join our Slack or just contribute to our Patreon. And if, if you give at least a dollar to our patreon.com slash greater than code, um, then you'll get an invitation to our Slack channel, which is low volume and very friendly. Um, but you don't have to join the Slack. 
Well, you don't have to contribute to our Patreon either, but we'd love it if you did. I will be, for the record. <laughs> oh, Shantae, do you have any reflections? Yeah, that was what I was going to say is actually, like I said, that that this whole conversation, the way that we started and where we are now feels really good. And that for me, it's just a reminder not to have as many expectations and adhere to these goals, but to be thinking about how I can show up, be better, be effective, and even with pods of four people versus a, a room of 40 or a 400. And so it's not about quantity, it's about quality conversation, which I think we just had. We didn't start the conversation saying where we all landed in terms of these notions and thoughts, but I do feel that we're very much on the same page or in the, on the same vibe, if that makes sense. We are all better for having run in this conversation race together. Yes, yes. Yes. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 